earlier, we read David's confession of his sin in Psalm 51. And I gave the explanation then. David had committed adultery. He covered up that adultery by engineering the murder of his cohort in adultery's husband. And Nathan the prophet rebuked him publicly. It became public knowledge. Question, the book of Leviticus is there. That is the law of the land. He should be, as with Bathsheba, he should be, a, he should be under two piles of rocks, according to the law. Yet what is the very first verse David says in Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God. God's mercy always prevails. There's an episode recorded, and I love the way Matthew lays this out. Jesus is in the home of Peter in Capernaum, and, that, and Peter's house is packed with people. And there's Jewish religious leaders there. It's just packed with people. And these fellows bring a, a paralyzed fellow on a cot, and they bring him to Peter's house, and they can't get in the door. Because the house is packed, the street is... So they get up on Peter's roof and start ripping the tiles away. Put yourself in Peter's place. Oh my word, what's happening? <laughs> they rip the tiles away and let this fellow's cot down right into the middle of the living room. And he's paralyzed. And what does Jesus say to this young man? Young man, rejoice! Your sins are forgiven. Well, that wasn't why his friends brought him there. That isn't why he entreated his friends to bring him there. But it sure, certainly was an issue. It wasn't. It, but the same faith that caused him to motivate his friends to take him there and let him down through Peter's roof. Jesus actually solves the larger problem first. Son, rejoice. Your sins are forgiven. And what is the response of the Jewish leadership? <gasps> Blasphemy! No one has the right to forgive sins except God. Well, they're absolutely right. They're right. And Jesus knows their thoughts, and he turns to them, and he says, in order that you find stout righteous fellows might understand who I am, the Son of Man, which is their favorite term for Messiah, drawn from Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, I want you to know, does have authority on earth to forgive sins. Why? Because, as the Hebrew Scriptures teach, I am God come in the flesh. In order that you might know I can do that invisible thing that only God can do, I will now do a visible thing that only God can do. And he turns to the young man. He says, young man, rise, take up your bed and go home. And instantly this paralyzed fellow gets up, rolls his cot up and starts walking out. 
And I would dare say, I might just be reading a little bit in there. I think they start hyperventilating. (laughs) What? 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 Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins of that young man. Of David. Have mercy on me, O God. David knew he would get what he asked for. That's one of the things why, let me tell you, if you're going to live in any one book of the Bible, read, live in the book of Psalms. It recites over and over and over and over again what your God is like and what he does in the reality of their environment. It's not remote. It's right there. David deserves to be, according to the law, under two piles of rocks. Have mercy on me, O God. And he knew that his God had the right to forgive sins, which God declares. And in fact, later on in that, it's interesting, in that psalm, David says, sacrifice an offering you have not desired. What's he say? I've checked out Leviticus. There is no adultery sacrifice. There is no murder sacrifice. (laughs) There's no hope for me in Leviticus. The hope for me is in the one who gave it to us, is in the merciful God, the forgiving God. And he got mercy. Later on, 300 years later in the prophet Isaiah, we are actually directed by God to the sure mercies of David. David wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't God making an exception because he really was fond of this fellow more than anybody. No, 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 no. The sure mercies of David. And that is what a very rebellious, sinful Judah is pointed to by the, prop, by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. He pointed them to the sure mercies of David. If you cry out to God for mercy, it's a sure thing. You'll get it. And what gives our Holy Father, Holy God, the freedom to do it? Because he sent his son to the cross. Where Jesus was our substitute. And all of the wrath, all of the lake of fire. Who is Jesus? He is God the Son. Become man. The Nicene Creed states it accurately. He is true God of true God, true man of true man, joined together in one person. He's not half man, half God. He's fully God, fully man, joined together in one person. What is the value of Jesus in heaven's, on heaven's scale compared to the entire human race? How many billions of Descendants of Adam have there been. And yet in heaven's eyes, the value of the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said, his value is greater than our value altogether. And so he is able to pay sin's penalty for all of us. And he is eternal in his nature. And so when he was nailed to that wooden altar that we call the cross... All of the lake of fire experience due to a human race for eternity could be poured out on him in the span of a few hours on that cross. He took all of the judgment due to us. Your sin debt's been paid. 
Your sin debt's been paid. All you have to do to receive the benefit is say, Lord, I'm abandoning my trust and my own works, my own goodness, my own efforts. I'm completely abandoning that. I'm asking you to, I'm holding out an empty hand. Will you give me what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross? And the uniform response of our loving Father is yes. Yes, eagerly, happily. Happily, I will do that. That's the benefit. That was the benefit that gave God the freedom to forgive David. That's the benefit that gives him freedom to forgive that young man set down, let down through the roof of Peter's house. That's the benefit. That's the freedom that God has to do what Jesus does here in John chapter eight. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The rabbis sat, and the Congregation stood. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said to him, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. By the way, they are governed by the Romans. They've been conquered by the Romans. The Romans reserved to themselves the right to execute people. And so if Jesus had said, yes, go ahead and stone her, that would have put him in jeopardy with Roman authorities. Now that's not why Jesus did what he did. But in fact, that's what's in their mind. That's what this, that they want to trap him with the Roman authorities. Jesus, I love his, the way he responds. They do, they drag her in, they make this accusation, and what does Jesus do? He holds up his forefinger, and he just bends over, and he starts scribbling in the dust of, on the floor. Question. They just asked him about the law. Those Ten Commandments... What was the writing instrument that is, was used by God to write those Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone? The finger of God. So what's Jesus saying to these men when they drag her in? You've come to the right fellow. I am, in fact, the one who inscribed those laws. As God the Son, I inscribed those laws on those stone tablets. And then he sits up and says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And then he sits up a few minutes later, and all of the accusers have left, as the text says, from the oldest to the youngest. By the way, that crowd is still there that was there when they dragged that woman in. And as the narrative says, those who heard it stepped out one, one at a time, one by one. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord, neither do I condemn you. I am forgiving. That's an, kind of a backwards way of saying, I'm removing your condemnation. The same Lord who has the authority to forgive sins, as he states in Matthew chapter 9, is the same Lord who has the authority to condemn. I'm taking your condemnation away from you. By the way, you read John's got any of the Gospels. Jesus is, isn't afraid of condemning <laughs> or threatening. He does it, especially with the Jewish leadership, all the time. <laughs> Neither do I condemn you. Obviously, he saw a spirit of repentance in this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Don't do it again. Then Jesus said to them again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Vermin flee the light. What draws us? He draws us. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. The Jewish leaders that dragged this woman in to put Jesus in a corner, caring nothing about her, She's just a tool. She's an instrument for us to get Jesus. Are they walking in the light or in the darkness? The Jewish religious leaders were walking in darkness. As we will see in the narrative all the way through John's, all of the Gospels, the principal opponents of Jesus are the religious leaders. He is a threat to their moral authority and threat to their criminal enterprise that temple called that Jesus calls the den of thieves. It is a criminal enterprise and he's a threat to it. And they know who he is. Don't ever imagine that they didn't get it. No, they got it. They got it. Something you may or may not know about the Sadducees in particular. By the way, the Pharisees and Sadducees absolutely despised each other. They hated each other. But they were united together in their opposition to Jesus because he was a threat to both of them. The Sadducees actually had formed a, a, a theological outlook that said, oh, there's no such thing as eternal life. When I die, I die like a dog and I'm out of even of God's reach. Yay, yay, yay. Of course, Jesus smacked them with that when they came to him and had that a tale. Oh, well, there was this fellow that married this woman. The oldest of five brothers, excuse me, seven brothers. And according to the law, if the husband dies before having an offspring, then it's the obligation of the next brother to marry his brother's widow so that he can raise up a child in the name of 
his older brother. And so that woman went through seven brothers, one, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and never had a child. And uh, <clears throat> in the kingdom, after the resurrection, said these Sadducees, in the kingdom, whose wife will she be? Hardy, har, har. And Jesus said, you are so foolish. You don't understand anything. In the kingdom, there is no marriage. That's why in our marriage ceremonies we say, till death us do part. The surviving spouse has the right to remarry without violating God's moral code. Because upon the death of one spouse or another, the marriage is end, and there is no marriage in heaven. So, and by the way, at, you've heard of the burning bush episode, you religious leaders, right? You've heard of that? Where God says to Moses, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, men who had died hundreds of years before. But I am, present tense, their God. They were alive in the presence of God. And the Sadducees fled with their tail between their legs. Well... These opponents of Jesus, they know who he is. They know who he is. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. We just had a wonderful testimony from a brother here. Been sober for 15 days. Why? Because Jesus walked with him through that God did that for him. That's why it's a testimony for God. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. He will not follow the old trails. He will walk in the light, but have the light that leads to life. It makes a difference in the choices that are made. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, I know that's what our translation said, but that word true would be best paraphrased with the word acceptable. Because in the law of Moses, if you had a moral issue or a legal issue, and you had, say, two neighbors contesting, and they go before, they go to the city of refuge, and they go before the elders there, and the issue is presented to them. Let's say you're the accused, and you stand up and say, I'm innocent. Well, that doesn't carry a lot of weight. We expect accused people to declare their innocence. Okay? The accuser, there must be more than one accuser. It cannot just be one man's word against another. You've got to have at least two, and even better than that, three people united in their testimony against the accused, or with the accused saying, no, he's innocent. No, he's innocent. It just can't be one person's word against another. That was not acceptable. You've got to have at least two or three witnesses together against the accused. And so Jesus says, they're saying, it's not 
in our legal system, you're testifying in your own behalf. That doesn't stand up. That's not enough. And Jesus, hey, I'm not by myself. I'm not by myself. By the way, an accuser is falsely accused, can tell the truth about himself, and it's true. The accuser has to have someone standing it by his shoulder, united in their testimony against the accused. What does Jesus say? Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. It is acceptable. I am going to stand up for my own integrity. My witness is true. It is accepted. For I know whom I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. And one of the things that is amazing in John's Gospel is you constantly have people saying, well, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Well, Nicodemus in the previous chapter. Nicodemus stands up in the Sanhedrin in an attempt to defend Jesus. And they say, what, are you a Galilean? Don't you know? There's no prophet that has ever arisen from Galilee or ever will. Wrong on both counts. Jonah was from Galilee. Oh, by the way, Jonah didn't want to be a, fair, a prophet, and they didn't like the fact that he was a prophet. <laughs> but he was, and he was from Galilee. And what does it say also? In Galilee of the Gentiles, there is shown a great light. The Scripture actually declares that their Messiah will be from Galilee. And then you've got other people in John's Gospel saying, wait a minute, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and he's from the line of David. Well, they don't know what we know in Matthew's Gospel. He's born in in Bethlehem, and he is indeed from the line of David, legally through his, his legal father, Joseph. And actually, through his mother, we know this from Luke's Gospel, the genealogy there is through Mary, and likewise from David. He fulfills both. But you know what's interesting? When they bring this up, Jesus doesn't ever address that. He keeps saying this over and over and over again. I'm from heaven. Did I tell you I'm from heaven? I'm from heaven. I'm from heaven. I'm from heaven. I'm from, I'm from the Father. I'm from the Father. I'm from the Father. I'm from, I'm from heaven. He, he keeps pointing them to the place of origin that is really important. I'm from heaven. I'm sent from the Father. And who is the one witnessing beside me? The Father. My Father witnesses of me. Every miracle He did, every sign that He did, was in the energizing power provided to him by the Father. The Father testifies of me. Even if I bear witness of myself, verse 14, my witness is true, it is legally acceptable, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from, come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. I didn't come here to judge. I came here to deliver. I came here to be deliverer, not a condemner. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. I have a testifier beside me who agrees with me. I'm with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself. I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the bread of life. He's testified, come to me and I will give you the, the drink that will slake your thirst for eternal life. He's, he's, he's doing all of these I am's. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these from John's Gospel. I am one who bears witness of myself, and my Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? By the way, the condemners have left. These are the people that were already there listening to him, saying these things to him. Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. As you read through John's Gospel, and I've said this last Sunday, and I said this the Sunday before that, and I said this the Sunday before that, the issue in the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 12, which is the portion meant for unbelievers to read, the issue is, what kind of believer are you? What kind of believer are you? Are you a superficial believer? Are you a shallow believer? Are you an authentic believer? Are you one who will pursue me and keep pursuing me even when it's, it says earlier in John's Gospel, many who believed in it, many of his disciples, disciples, disciples left him because of his declarations about who, this is just too big to get my mind and heart wrapped around, and they left him. They stopped following him. These believers, in quotes, stopped because his message just got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally he turned to the apostles and said, well, fellows, there's the door. And Peter, the apostle, said, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? In the Gospel of John, the question we are to be asking ourselves and it's repeated over what kind of believer am I the close of John 2 when Jesus had done all the signs when he cleansed the temple the first time many believed in him but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men and so as I read John's gospel I have to ask myself and this is what I am supposed to be doing what kind of believer am I Jesus makes these outrageous, enormous claims. But, question, does he present the evidence to sustain those outrageous claims? Yes, he does. Evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Now his hour will come, 
his hour will come when he will go to the Garden of Gethsemane and allow himself to be arrested and taken away. And Peter takes off the high priest's servant's ear with his sword. Peter, stop it. (laughs) And he heals the man. Don't you know I can call 10 legions of angels? Folks, that's 70,000 angels. I can defend myself. I'm willingly giving myself over to them. Well, that time has not yet come at this point in the narrative. But I ask you the question and I ask myself the question. What kind of believer am I? Am I going to continue to pursue my Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, come in the flesh? Am I going to pursue him according to everything that he declares himself to me to be? Will I lay hold of and welcome into my life experience all of the reality of his declarations? Let's pray together. Our Lord, this is a challenge to every single one of us here. This week, and I'm praying this as much for myself as anybody else in this room, will you grant us the energizing power of your Holy Spirit to seek you in the quietness of solitude to seek you, to open your word and read it and seek you in the quietness of solitude, to seek you out and to enable, and that you would enable us to welcome you in all the fullness of who you are. In all of the reality, all of your declarations, all of your accomplishments, that we might experience all of the blessing, all of the riches of the kingdom that you desire to be our experience. And again, Lord, we hold Ariana, we hold Harold, we hold this little baby in the hospital before you and ask that you would cleanse them. Show yourself strong on their behalf. Enable them to welcome all its reality for our brother Lloyd Hickman as well into their life experience. In your name, Good Shepherd Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.